continue in worship as I read from Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38, then we'll have a, a moment of prayer before the message. This is what the word says in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud that settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. This morning's message is Exodus chapter 34, verse 1, through Exodus chapter 40, verse 38. That's six chapters. We will conclude this on Memorial Day, but not this one. Now, as you might expect, we are really just pulling out a couple of key passages out of Exodus 34 through 40, and we'll just be highlighting a couple of key sections. We're not going to be covering the entire thing word by word, as much of it is repeated uh, from something that came up earlier. This is a redescription of the design of the tabernacle. So we're going to be starting with our focus this morning in Exodus chapter 34, verse 1. But just a reminder about Exodus. We started in September. It's a long time ago. And the meat and potatoes of the book of Exodus is probably about that period of time. Now, the beginning of the book is Moses' birth, and then you've got Moses wandering around being a shepherd for 40 years, and then all these other things. But once the, the events really start happening, the, the, the amount of time Exodus covers is not very long. They leave Egypt. A few months later, they're in Sinai, and the next chapter, the book is over. So Exodus is a short book. I would put it this way, as one writer says, when Exodus ends, we discovered Exodus does not come to an end, but Exodus as a book is really just the beginning. Exodus as a book is just the beginning. Let me just highlight a couple of things. The people of Israel were in Egypt as slaves, and God came and saved them. God found them in Egypt. They were crying out to God in their misery, and God showed up and said, okay, I'll save you from your captors. So in Exodus, we discover this very important thing about God that's going to go throughout the entire Bible. God finds us and saves us. We don't find him. God comes and finds us and says, I will save you. And he did that for the people of Egypt. Not only does God find us, but he saves us. As the people of Israel found out, as they were leaving Egypt, they came to a roadblock that we call the Red Sea. And God said, I got this, don't worry about it. And he parted the Red Sea, and they walked right through it. And so we discover this about God, is God can and will save us. The New Testament writers compared the people of Israel walking through the Red Sea with baptism. They were then identified with their rescuer by being baptized through the Red Sea, just as we are identified with our rescuer, Jesus, through baptism. In Exodus, we learn these at least two things about God. God finds us, and God saves us. We don't have time to go into all the things the people of Israel were doing during these times. 
mostly moaning. I'm not going to say whether or not you compare, can relate with that or not, but I think you probably can. Finally, this last section, God has found them, God has saved them, and now today, the title of today's message really, I think, then becomes one of the primary messages of the book of Exodus, God is with us. God finds us, God saves us, and then what? God is with us. God is with us. And I want us to look at a couple of just snippets from these six chapters to help us understand this important thing. People of Israel are in the wilderness, and now they're going to discover something maybe even more powerful than being found and being saved, and that's this, that God is with them. And by application and implication, we can say this, God is with us. First thing, Exodus 34, 1 through 28. The Lord said to Moses, cut out a couple of tablets from stone like the first ones. This is not the first ones, which means this is what? The, at least the second ones. It's the second ones. Why do we not have the first ones? He dropped them. Mr. Butterfingers. Because Moses flew into a rage and was so enraged at the... Uh, a disobedience of the people of Israel to worship an idol while God was present on the mountain right next to him. He got so mad he threw the first copy of the covenant onto the ground and broke it. And now Moses is going back to God and God is saying, make a, get another set and bring it on up here. I'll copy and paste. Um, I will write on the tablet the words that were on the first tablets which you broke, Moses. Be ready in the morning, come up on the morning, present yourself there. No one is to come up with you. Don't let anyone touch the mountain. Don't let the animals touch the mountain. So verse 4, Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He got up early in the morning. He went up on the mountain. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him in verse 5. And this is what the Lord said. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a good and merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. Listen to how God describes himself to the people of Israel and to Moses who while God was on the mountain next to them, they worshipped an idol. Here's what God said. The Lord, that's his name, God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Can I just ask a quick question before we actually get to the message? Yeah, we haven't even started yet, just so you know. What... what why do we think the Old Testament God is the mean one? Did you, did you hear the description of what God says? What ought to happen to people who have rebelled against him by worshiping other gods, and God says, what you think ought to happen is not going to happen, not because you're fancy pants, awesome sauce. What ought to happen won't because I am amazing, God is saying. I am faithful and gracious and have her steadfast love and I forgive iniquity 
The people of Israel are so fortunate that God is who he is, who forgives and offers grace and mercy. He by no means won't hold guiltless those who reject him, but those who will come to him and impose on his graciousness, God says, impose on me all day long because that's how I do it. God is with us, first point, God is with us because of his promises. God is with us because of his promises, not because the people of Israel deserve it, not because we deserve it, not because we haven't sinned very bad, or not because of whatever we think we are that God should be with us. God is with us because of his promises and his promises alone. Moses, bring tablets up onto the mountain because the only reason I can be with you is because of my covenant of mercy and grace and love. Years ago, an NBA player who remained nameless uh, was up for free agency. It means his contract was over. means he could go and sign with any team he wanted. And uh, he was a pretty good player. And uh, so he had started exploring his options with some teams. He got offered one contract from one team in particular, and they offered him $21 million to play basketball for them, which is a pretty good paycheck. Uh, it's decent for playing ball. I mean, but he's good, and people paid a lot of money to watch him play. So, uh, you know, market uh, factors say he should get paid for doing it, right? But he didn't think $21 million was what he ought to get paid. Which, you know, that's, that's fine. Negotiations are negotiations. He should get all the money that he thinks he can get out of it. But his agent said, you know, we probably ought to take this contract. I think this is what you're going to get. I think they're in the ballpark here. You know, maybe you get a little bit more. But, you know, I think maybe this is, this is the ticket. Well, I think maybe we should sign this contract. But the player, he didn't feel like he was respected with that amount. So he said, no, I'll explore my options. He never played basketball again. So he signed a contract for zero dollars. Because he didn't take the contract he was, he was offered. And nobody else wanted him to play for them. They, didn't, they, didn't, they thought, well, he could play, but he's not, uh, he not well enough to, to, to get the contract he demands. So he, instead of taking the contract he was offered and getting paid, he took no contract and had nothing. And this is what the people of Israel did. God came to them and says, here is my covenant. And they said this, we'll take the golden calf, please. But see, this is what's funny about God, is now Moses is going back to him, representing the people of Israel, and God says, get on up here. Let's do this thing. Not because you're amazing, not because you're a great people, not because of anything, but because I am a great God who is gracious and faithful and loving kindness, and my, my love and, and faithfulness abounds to thousands. Bring up a new set of tablets, Moses. The relationship with us is going to be based on a covenant, and that promise is going to be based on who I am. He then says this. Look down at verse 11 of Exodus 34. Listen to what I have to say to you, God says. Behold, when you get to the promised land, I'm going to drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and of course, who else? We learned this last week. The Central Pointites. Verse 12, take care. Take care. Pay attention. You have a covenant with me, God is saying. You have a covenant with me. Take care. You have a promise with me etched in stone that will never fail because I never fail. So verse 12, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of that land and they become a snare to you. 
Don't make a covenant with them. Their covenant is useless. In fact, a covenant with them will be a snare to you. Instead, have only a covenant with me, God who is steadfast. Make no covenant with the Canaanites. Allow me to deal with them as they need to be dealt with. Instead, in obedience, keep your covenant with me. You have relationship with me, and I am with you, God would say, because of my promises. Don't go and seek out other promises. Don't go and seek out other beneficial relationship. In fact, I would summarize God's covenant with his people this way. God's promise with his people is, I will be with you, which means his covenant binds him to them even more than it binds them to him. A promise from God is him saying what he will do. And God always does what he says he will do. His restrictions on them, his obedience that he puts on them, you know, things like don't worship idols, don't envy your neighbor's wife, don't steal your neighbor's F-150. Don't murder, you know, real complicated kinds of things. The things that he gives them to do is a way of saying, I have made promises with you, and this is the way you participate with me in the promises I intend to keep. Uh, a way of thinking about this. If somebody invites you over to their house, they say, please come over to my house. What are the conditions? There's no conditions. Come on over. What do I have to do? What's the one thing you do have, have to do? You have to go in their house. The way in which you participate in the invitation is you knock on the door, they open the door, you walk in. But they invited you to their home freely. The way you participate in that invitation is you walk in the door. And what God is saying with the, with the law code and the Ten Commandments, listen, I am making promises to you, and I want to show you how, how you participate in the covenant I am making with you. But the covenant is going to be upheld not by your obedience, but by my faithfulness, God would say. Let me show you how this works. Genesis 15. Genesis 15, God is talking to a guy named Abraham. You've heard of Abraham? If you've never heard of him, he had many sons, apparently. Genesis 15, 1. God is talking to Abraham. God came to him in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, and your reward is going to be great. Lord, what are you going to give me? i got no kids. It's fair. It's what the word of the Lord said to him in verse 4. Your servant will not be your heir, but I am going to give you your very own son. And God brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven, look at the stars, that's how many kids you're going to have. And Abraham believed God. Then God says this to him in verse 9. Bring me a heifer. Bring me a female goat, bring me a ram, bring me a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all of these to God, and he cut them in half and laid them out. Laid them out. He didn't cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came to mess with the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and he fell asleep. And darkness fell on him, and the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. But I will bring judgment on that nation, and I will give them great possessions. And the sun went down, verse 17, 
And the Lord made a covenant with Abraham by doing this. A smoking fire pot passed through the pieces of animals, and God made a promise to Abraham, to your offspring I give the promised land, from Egypt to the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, Jebusites, and the Central Pointites. Abraham divided animals up, put them out, and God made a promise to him, and God passed through the pieces of the animals. And that is the way a covenant is made in those days. And this is what would happen. I've described this to you before, but it's worth reminding again. A, a big, powerful king would make a covenant with a little runt king. And he, the big, powerful king said, I promise not to kill you and everybody you know. And you have to promise to send me your money every now and then. And I promise not to kill you. And what we're going to do is if you're faithful to me, I'm going to be faithful to you. So they lay out the animals, and the little runt king would pass through the animals, the little squirt, the powerless guy, pass through the animals. And what they would do, the idea was this. If you are not faithful to me, the big and powerful king, may it be to you as was to these animals. So if you're unfaithful to me, little runt king, I will do to you what have been done to these animals, but I won't do you the service of sharpening the blade so well as it was done for these animals. So it was a threat, wasn't it? If you don't obey me, I'm going to cut you in half. Another way they did it in those times is instead of cutting the animal's half, they would cut off the, the hind leg and they would shove it down the animal's throat. That's disgusting. On purpose. And they would say, if you don't obey me, may it be to you as was does to this, this animal. What does God do for Abraham that's very different? He doesn't make Abraham pass through the animals, does he? Who passes through the animals? God passes through the animals. So what is God saying? Abraham, if you and your people cannot obey my covenant, may it be done to who? Maybe it done to me was done to these animals. That's a covenant where he says, you can't keep promises, period. So what I'm going to do is make a promise with you, and what you need to do is realize this by faith. God is with us. He will make a way for that covenant to be held. And so now it's going into the book of Exodus, and he's saying the same thing to them. Come on up, Abraham, with your new tablets of stone. I will make a covenant with you. And you participate in that covenant of love and mercy and grace through obedience, through faith. But the means of that covenant being in place, the means of me being with you, is I am God who is faithful and true to the end. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. This is really interesting. There's a passage we often read on Communion Sunday, which is next week. So we'll probably read it again next week. This is really interesting. 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read 23 to 25. I think 25 is on the screen. The Bible says this, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that, the, that Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Any chance you think Jesus was thinking about Genesis 15 when he said that? Any chance Jesus would think about those animals he had Abraham laid out? Remember, Jesus didn't start when he was born. We know this, right? Jesus has always been, and he was there with Abraham, and Abraham was laying out those animals, and Jesus said, I know what's going down. I know what's going to happen, and I'm all in. 
And Jesus is now saying, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember those animals? Remember my body which was divided and it was done for you because you can't keep promises. I can. Look what verse 25 says. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. New what? Covenant, a promise, a deal, a contract. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, which is this. Remember, we are promise breakers, covenant destroyers, disobeyers, rejectors, rebels. And he is a covenant keeper, faithful and gracious and steadfast and true. And not just in the New Testament. It started all the way back in Genesis. And we see it in Exodus when, when God calls Moses up onto the mountain and says, get you some new tablets. I got this covered. Are you guys disobeyed? You don't know the half of it. You're not even in the promised land yet. God is with us because of his promises. When you woke up the other day, and it was a crummy day, and you were pretty certain that God has bailed on you because you had been so bad. You remember that thing you did? Don't tell us. Please don't tell us. Tell somebody, but don't tell us. Remember that thing you did? And you woke up, and you're like, there's no way God is going to hear me. Have you ever thought that? It's going to be awkward if it's just me. What does the Bible say about that? Are you the first person in all of human history who has managed to get God to bail on his promises? Are you the first one who could out the grace of God? The first one? Are you the first one who was able to sin bad enough that the cross was not enough? That is bad theology. It's heresy. It's not the truth. The fact is, when you come back to God again, crawling on your hands and knees, I blew it. He says, thankfully for you, me being with you is not based on you. It's based on me, and I'm awesome, God says. I am faithful. I am true. I am steadfast to a thousand generations. I am with you again and still. God is with us because of his promises. If you have a relationship with God, it is only because of God alone. It has nothing to do with you except for your faith. He did it all. Good news, you cannot be bad enough to get out of God. You cannot be good enough to get to God. You need to rely completely on God. So God is with you if you will have him, if you will trust him. God is with us because of his promises. All right, since God's promises equal God is with us, therefore there is between us and God, there's no barrier. So God is with us, and there is no barrier between God and us. Look at Exodus 34, 29 through 35. This is a really, I don't know how to say it, it's kind of strange. God is with us, and there is no barrier between us uh, and God. Moses came down from the mountain, and he had the tablets of the testimony in his hand when he came down from the mountain. God had rewritten the covenant on those tablets because God is awesome. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He was all shiny. He was like a glow-in-the-dark thing. He had been standing by God, and now he's all glowy. Aaron and all the people saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. 
Moses called to them, and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked to them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them everything that God had said. Listen, God is faithful. He is true. Here's the way in which we participate in his good covenant. And when, verse 33, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face, covered his face. It's too bright. It was bothering everybody. Whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he'd take the veil off. And when he came out, he put the veil back on, and he talked to the people of Israel. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, and that his skin was shining. Moses would put the veil over his face until he went in to speak with God. Because it was scaring the people. It was scaring them when they would see the glory of God shining on Moses. They wanted a barrier between them and Moses because the glory of God emanating from Moses was intimidating, was frightening, it was, it was scary. They didn't like it. Here's the thing about communication. In communication, there's a lot of different ways we can communicate. You can text. I don't know if I should ask this. You ever texted your spouse when you're sitting in the same room? You ever done that? Okay, now it's a good technique if the kids are in there. Kids, you have no idea how, what we're saying about you. You're texting. Um, the other time, you can FaceTime. That's a little better, especially if you're distant. You FaceTime with one another. Uh, but even that's not terribly uh, close. You can write a letter. Have you ever written a letter? Anybody write letters still? You should do that. That's kind of a good way of communicating, write letters. Uh, what you want to do is after you're gone, you want people to find your letters in the attic. They're not going to find your emails after you're gone. Nobody's going to go through your email. So the more personal communication, of course, is face-to-face -face communication, sitting down and talking to somebody. You can hear their voice. You can see the expression on their uh, face. You can see them, what they're doing with their hands. Are they fidgeting? Are they squirming? Are they nervous? When you're sitting face-to-face -face with one another, you're communicating on a close and personal level. And the people of Israel were much too afraid to sit face to face with God. And in fact, the people of Israel were afraid even to be in the presence of the glory of God emanating off of Moses. It brought out the fear in the people of God. And I think in particular, it brought out their fear because just previous to that, they were worshiping a golden calf. And now they were confronted with the presence of God and the glory of God on their hearts was like an x-ray. The glory of God in their hearts and their minds was revealing to them everything that was going on. Sometimes we can feel bad about the things we do that we know aren't right. There's one thing in particular that makes us feel even worse. Getting caught. I mean, certainly there's things that we do that are wrong. We're saying, eh, I ought not to do that. But it's even worse when somebody knows about it. Now all of a sudden it's like right in front of us. Oh, they know. What do they think of me? And, and the people of Israel with the glory of God emanating off of Moses' face, it wasn't so much that it was too, made them squint too much. It went right through them and it was illuminating all the hidden corners of their life and it was being made quite clear in their own hearts and minds they weren't as devoted to God as he was to them. And so their reaction was put the veil on. Put the veil on. We, we see what's going in our heart, and we don't, want, we don't want to be exposed to what that is. The hardening of our heart, our sin, our idolatry. And God seeing that stuff is saying, them, okay, put the veil on. So Moses wore a veil. 
the correct response to God shining a light on, his, on our hearts is not hiding from God, but instead the correct response is repentance and faith. God, you have seen what's going on on my inner person. Instead of saying, God, don't look, the correct response is, God, you need to change me. Look at, would you, can you believe what's going on inside of me? And God says, oh yeah, I've seen it all. I don't want to be that person, Lord. Change me. Repentance and faith. But the last thing I want to do is have something between me and God. The people of Israel are more comfortable holding on to their pet sin and the hardness of their heart than they are having God change them so that they can experience the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 3.16 puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 3.16. Well, let me read. Uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians 3.16 says this. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And Paul here in the book of Corinthians is talking about the veil of Moses. He's saying, when we come to the Lord, we don't come to the Lord with a veil like the people of Israel had Moses with a veil on. What Paul is saying, when we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed and we can stand in the glorious presence of God and, and he can illuminate our hearts and minds and we say, God, see everything you need to see. Look what it says in verse second, 7 of 2 Corinthians 3. If the ministry of death, that is the ministry of the law under Moses, carved in letters on stone tablets, if that came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Here's what Paul is saying. The scripture is teaching us. The, the ministry of Moses had glory such that he had to wear a veil so the, pe the people couldn't see it. What then is the glory of Christ? Is it greater or less than the ministry of the law? It's greater than. The glory of Christ is the glory of God providing for the payment of all of our sins so that it's all wiped clean so we're made completely new and we now have the, the ability in Christ to stand in God's presence. If there was glory in Moses' ministry, how much more glory is there in Christ's ministry? And the answer is this, there is no veil. There is no separation between us and God. There is no barrier between the one who has trusted Christ for forgiveness and Christ himself. We can talk to God boldly. We can uh, be in God's presence. We can do his will. We can rest in his grace. We can glory in the fact that one day in Christ we will see God himself. And there is no fear. There is no barrier there. Maybe this would be a fair question. Or maybe it wouldn't be. You can, add, you can tell me. Do you ever feel, feel like there's a barrier between you and God? Do you ever feel like God's not listening? Like, you know, he... Obviously, you wouldn't listen to someone like me. I'm not faithful enough. I don't obey enough. I don't uh, volunteer enough. I'm, I lose my temper too much. I speed. Or I don't speed. I don't know, whatever it is. Ever feel like there's a barrier there? Well, God couldn't, certainly couldn't hear me. God certainly couldn't accept me into his presence. Well, this is what, what the Bible is telling us. In Christ, there's no barrier. In Christ, there is no barrier between us and the Father. God is with us, and there is no barrier between us. The book of Hebrews says this. 
the only barrier that would be there is the curtain, and the curtain has been opened. We pass into the presence of God through Christ himself, and there's no barrier there. There's no good luck charm. There's no coin you have to rub. There's no thing you have to do. The only thing that must be done for you to enter into the presence of God himself is trust Jesus, and then you walk in. There is no barrier. God is with us. The law is good, but Christ is better. If you feel that there's a barrier between you and God, it's not from God. If that sense that there's something between you and God, God doesn't sense that. In Christ, he's saying, come on up here. I want to talk to you. Well, but did you see what I did last week, God? God said, yeah, that was, wow, okay, that was a homer. Um, let's talk about that, but I want to talk with you. I want to make you like my son, that you don't go there anymore, but I want you in my presence. God is with us. There is no barrier. There is no veil. There is no magic formula that gets God to finally pay attention to you. God is with you in Christ. God is with us because of his promises. God is with us. There is no barrier. And finally, chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. I read it earlier, so I'm not going to read it again. God is with us to lead us to his purpose. God is with us in order to lead us to his purpose. Did you read in the news about this, uh, this lady? She got lost in Hawaii. I know, I've never been to Hawaii, but it's an island. Don't you just keep walking until you get to the beach? I don't. <laughs> Apparently, it's not that easy. She was lost for, was it two weeks? Two weeks, she was lost. She fell down. She got hurt. She was lost for two weeks. She was near some fresh water, so she was able to drink. There was some fruit in the tree. She was eating. And um, finally, helicopters were flying over, and they saw her waving. They came and got two weeks. She lived out in the Hawaiian wilderness, uh, trying to stay alive. So what if they, they came to her in the helicopter? They fly down to her. Hey, we found you. You're safe. Great. Okay, let's get in the helicopter and, and, uh, and get out of here. Oh, no, no. All I needed was to be found. So I'm good. Want to stop by? Just come in and check, check on me every now and then. Just, just fly over to make sure I'm still moving. Maybe drop in some Fig Newtons. That was random. I don't know where Fig Newtons came from. I don't know. <laughs> sounds, sounds delicious. <laughs> was lost in Hawaii? Fig Newtons. No, that didn't make any sense. Why did they rescue her? Get her out of there. That's the whole point, isn't it? The reason we've showed up to rescue is not to declare you safe. The reason we have rescued you is to actually make you safe. And so we discover here in the glory of the Lord, verse 34 of Exodus 40, the glory and presence of God is in the tabernacle, and he is there with them. Whenever the cloud went, what did the people do? The people went. The presence of God was there to draw them into his purpose. The presence of God was to take them from where they are to where they needed to be. The glory of God was not there to bless them in the wilderness. The glory of God was there to get them out of the wilderness into the promised land, to lead his people on their journeys. To know God and his presence in our life is to follow God where he's going. 
to seek his will, to seek his purpose, to seek his presence on the journey. Let me put it this way. We didn't invite God into our lives. He invited us into his life. If God was coming into your life just to make sure your life went your way, which of those two people is God? If God is going to do everything I assume he must do, what does that mean? It means I'm God. Just for the record, I'm a lousy God. But that's sometimes how we approach our relationship with God. I want to know God through Christ for forgiveness. I want to know God that he, I might know his purpose. And I want to make sure his purpose is primarily to give me all the things I think I ought to need and want and have. And God says, I have rescued you to take you on my journey. And we say, God, that's great. As long as our two journeys match. And then God says, let's go over here. And we say, well, um, appreciate that. That's a great suggestion. I, that seems uncomfortable and scary. So I see where you're going, God. Yeah, that's, that's great for the really religious people, people who are really into it. I'm more of a casual observer. I'm kind of more into the how much do I have to show up to get you to do what I want category. And God says, I rescued you from what you want. I came to you to draw you into a purpose that's better than you could imagine, but it means I'm going to draw you into my things, not your things. God did not bring his presence to the people of Israel in the wilderness to make the wilderness great. God made his presence to the people of in the wilderness so he could lead them to where it's even better, his promised land. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. You can turn there, or if you happen to have it memorized, well, good for you. I have it memorized too, but I just, when you stand, try it one time, when you stand on this stage, all of your brain cells evaporate. <laughs> and I've only got like three, so that's hard. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. What does this mean? We get saved by trusting Jesus Death on the cross forgives us of our sin, and since he raised from the dead, we have life with him forever. We get saved by merely trusting him. We don't do anything to get saved, do we? But look at verse 10. He has saved us for a particular purpose. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. He made us in Christ to do the works he has uh, called us to do. He has made us in Christ to follow him, to be obedient to him, to walk in his ways. He has prepared a life for us that is exactly the best uh, purpose we can imagine, but we have to understand it's different than the purpose we may want. God has not redeemed us to give us everything we want. God has redeemed us to give us everything he wants. What we must be convinced of is what he wants for us is better than what we want. What we have to be convinced of is that what he wants for us is better than what we want. I know, I see some of you working. I want some pretty good stuff. How could what he wants possibly be better than what I want? Well, I, I don't want to be insulting, so I'll let the Bible do it. He's smarter. <laughs> the Bible says it this way. Who has the mind of God? 
Who has the mind of God? Who could imagine the good things he has for us? The best thing he has for us is to make us more and more like Christ, and that's what he's going to draw us into. Romans 12, 1 and 2, a passage you're very familiar with. I'll just read it, and then we're going to close. Here's what Paul says in the book of Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He is saying this. I am appealing to you, since God has shown you his mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's his argument. Since God has shown you so much mercy to redeem you from all of your sin and to show you steadfast love and grace over and over and over again, since his mercies are new every morning, offer yourselves as a sacrifice. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, meaning worship, for, worship God each, every, each and every day by living his ways, not your ways. How does that look? Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed and have your mind renewed that you may be able to test what the will of God is, his good and acceptable and perfect will. Short answer, be more like Jesus, less like the world. Be more like Christ, serving others, sacrificing for others, giving up our ways instead for his ways, and less like the world. Be made to be more and more like Jesus as an act of worship because of his mercy he has shown to us. God is with us in order to lead us into his purpose. God, we have God's presence, and his point is to draw us to be more and more like Christ. The question is, when he goes over here to make us like Christ, are we going to follow him over there? Here's a question for you, and then we'll, we'll close. Do you seek God, hoping that he will follow you and bless you? Or do you seek God that you might follow him and bless him? And here's a fair question for all, for all those who would know God. Do we want God to follow my leading, or do I want to follow his leading? What's better is to follow him. Okay, just a couple of questions. We're going to close with this. God is with us. I wrote this, and I don't know, it sounds kind of mean. I'm going to read it anyway. Oh, Seth wrote this. Okay, so it's Seth. <laughs> That's a nice one. Actually, he didn't. I shouldn't do that. When we find out from the scripture that the number one primary benefit, the thing God has given us by saving us is himself, the thing we gain in relationship with God is God. That's the thing we get is him. What do we gain in having a relationship with God through Christ? We gain God. Is that a letdown for you? Is that a, well, I was hoping for God and a new car. I was hoping for God and my sickness to go away. I was hoping for God and my marriage to magically work. I was hoping for God and successful work. Think of it this way. If you became a Christian in your life, long or short, the only thing you were going to get, the only benefit you were going to get out of following Christ was God's presence, and nothing good out of it was going to happen otherwise, would you still follow Christ? Depends on what day, right? But this is what we have to understand, what the Bible is telling us. 
What we gain from Christ is Christ. What we gain from his sacrifice and resurrection is the presence of God. And the fact that that seems like, well, that's okay, but I was hoping to get something else out of it, it's because our taste buds have become so sensitive to the things of the world, we failed to understand how wonderful the Lord is. Why is God with us? Because he makes promises that cannot be broken. Not because we are faithful, but because he makes promises that cannot be broken. Here's what John says in John 1, 12 and 13. To all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Born not of blood or the will of flesh, but born of God himself. We gain God not because we're good enough. We gain God because he keeps his promises. What stands between you and God? If you are in Christ, nothing stands between you and God. There is no barrier between you and God. If you are not in Christ, what stands between you and God is sin, and that is easily handled by merely trusting Christ for forgiveness. But if you are in Christ, there is nothing between you and God. I don't care how you feel about God. There is nothing between you and God. That is a deception of Satan or a deception of our flesh. If you are in Christ, you can talk to God right now, and he is listening. He is there with you. What do you get from God? A life, uh, what we get from God is a life finally free of our own agenda, and instead a life that is all about his agenda. And you may not believe me, but let me assure you, his agenda is better than ours. Our agenda, even when we accomplish it, still leaves us wanting. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is you get everything you ever wanted because you realize it won't scratch the itch you're going for. God's agenda, God's purpose for our life will lead us to satisfaction in him alone. If you're ready to experience the glory of his presence, trust him, go in, follow him. He is that faithful and that good.